Welcome to Design Your Life and Business, the podcast for leaders by Bright Mind Consulting Group. We give you the necessary tools to help you become the architect of not just your business, but your life too. I'm your host, Javon Wooden. Hey, what's going on, John? How are you? I'm doing good, Javon. How are you doing, man? Man, I'm doing well, doing well. Bless, man. We are in a new year as we record this. I'm ready to get this year going, man. I know that we are more capable of doing more things than we did last year. So I'm excited, man. Starting with this podcast, took a little break to welcome baby Javon. So we ah, congrats thing, man. So I'm excited. Love it. Cheer, brother. <laughs> oh, is that your first kid? First kid, man. First kid. And it is as beautiful as advertised besides the lack of sleep. <laughs> yeah, well, that comes with the territory, but congrats, man. That's awesome. Thank you say little boy? A little girl. Little, little girl. girl. All right. I got my girl. So if you want, after this, send me your address, because I don't know if you saw, but I, I wrote a book with my daughter called I Want to Be in Sales When I Grow Up. And it was when she was six years old, and it was about her like selling Girl Scout cookies and all that other stuff. So obviously, your kid's a little young right now for bedtime stories, other than like you know not really understanding them. But when yeah. she gets a little bit older, it's a good book to help your kid understand what you actually do for a living. Absolutely, man. I will send you that because uh, sales is a part of everything that we'll get to that in our conversations. Yeah. All right, man, let's get to it, man. I've been waiting for this interview. This is going to be fun. So first question I ask every guest is, who are you? Who is John Barrows? Well, I'm a father first. I would say that. The news for you. So I think that's first and foremost is family first with my wife and beautiful daughter. But a lot of different ways to peel this onion. But I would say to start with the typical American approach of what do we do? I'm a sales trainer, but my why is to help elevate the people in profession of sales by showing sales reps how to do it the right way with integrity and honest authenticity and all that stuff and break the stereotypes of sales reps, but that sales reps have out there and really make a difference. Because I genuinely believe when sales is done the right way, I think it's the greatest profession in the world. When done wrong, I think it's one of the worst. And Absolutely. so I'm just trying to do my thing to help people do it the right way. Wholeheartedly agree, man. And I saw you first on Apollo. If you're not aware of what Apollo mm. is, go ahead and Google it. It's a great sales tool. I saw you speak on that and I had to get you, man. You were very engaging, very insightful. No fluff, which is the style I have. So mm. I was like, I got to get this guy. So <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> you've been in the field for a while, man. You spent, what, 25 plus years working in sales. What yeah, a set you on that path? I kind of fell into it just like everybody else. You know, I mean, back then I graduated college in 98 and back then you couldn't really get your degree in sales. And so I got my degree in marketing because I didn't really know what I wanted to be when I grew up. And then when I got out in the field, I just, and I was looking for jobs, I just didn't like what I was seeing out there. Right? I've always been somebody who had a pretty strong work ethic and I was always bothered by doing a better job than other people and not, and getting paid the same. You know what I mean? And at the same time, getting the opportunity as everybody else to get to that next step. That's why, for instance, when I was a kid, I was a waiter, right? Because I knew as a waiter, the harder I worked, the more money I would make, right? And so that was always my driver. And when I got out and I realized I was going to be in salaried positions and have to wait two years to get my merit raise and hopefully get a promotion and all that stuff, it just didn't really fit with me. And so sales, I didn't really know about the career or the profession. It found me because Black & Decker owns DeWalt, right? Yes. Wall power tools. Yeah. And I went to University of Maryland and Black and Decker was right next to the University of Maryland. So they heavily recruit out of there. And they had this new position where it was for the DeWalt Swarm team, which was under sales, but it was really just event marketing, right? So it was my job to drive around, giving away free tools to construction workers, basically, right? Didn't have a quota, but I definitely had to spread the gospel. 
And then from there, I got promoted after a quick six months up to a Home Depot rep at DeWalt. So I, that was a little bit more sales because I had to take DeWalt. Home Depot had to buy DeWalt stuff, right? But I had to take that $10,000 order and turn it into a $50,000 order or something like that. So that was a little bit more sales because I had to cross sales, upsells, end caps, that type of thing. And then when I really got my sales education was when I left that and got to Xerox. And that's where selling copiers, <laughs> man, you would talk about selling a commodity, man. Yeah. So man. I was, I mean, yeah. And by the way, I sold to the government too. So I, I sold commodities to the government and it was about as brutal as it got, but that's where I got my formal sales training and the rest is history. So yeah, it's been fun ride since. Absolutely, man. And yeah, I'm a fellow Turk, University of Maryland. And we do. That's one of the first case studies they do is the Black and Decker, you know, when yep. you talk about okay. <laughs> so, exactly. very well aware, man. So I like that you mentioned that you wrote the book with your daughter um, that I want to be in sales when I grow up because no one says that when they're younger, right? And they don't really realize that sales is an everyday, it's really a life skill, right? Mm -hmm. Be able to sell because you have to sell yourself in some way, shape or form. So can okay. you talk about really what sales truly means? Because mm -hmm. it gets a bad rap. There's negative connotations to it. So what does that mean to be in sales? I mean, I think, look, the way I put it is if you're trying to convince somebody of something in sales, I think you're doing it wrong. Mm -hmm. Like sales isn't about convincing anybody of doing anything. Sales is about helping people solve problems or achieve goals, period. And if your problems aren't big enough and your goals aren't big enough, why are we having this conversation? And you said it right. A lot of people think about it as a profession, but I think it's a mindset. Obviously, it's a profession. A lot of people have it as a job, but it's a mindset because you'll take the most introverted engineer, right? I used to be one sales guy within 50 engineers, my first startup company. And you'd have the most introverted engineer on the planet, and they will swear upside down and sideways they're not in sales, right? But somebody told me this early that I believe to this day that sales is the transfer of enthusiasm, right? If you believe in what you sell, right? Like and that's what I mean, it believe. If you don't believe in what you sell, then you're one of those douchebag sales reps that's going out there just trying to get a commission check and screw people out of their money so you can get paid. And screw you, I hope you get out of this industry because you're giving us all a bad name. But if you believe, if you genuinely believe in what you sell, then it's that transfer of enthusiasm. I mean, you hear it all the time. People buy on emotion, they back it up with fact. And so let's go to that engineer, right? That doesn't think they're in sales. Mm -hmm. Okay, cool. Ask that engineer, ask the most introverted engineer you'll ever come across. Like, hey, could you explain to me the last time you fixed something or you found a bug in a code and it worked or you created something that was kind of cool, like from a technical standpoint, right? And you will watch that engineer light up like a Christmas tree and be like, oh man, the other day I was neck deep in code and I was figuring this out and I came across this one piece and it did this and da, 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 da. And you're like, man, that sounds badass. And if I needed that thing, I'd want it. You know what I mean? I'd be like, man, yes. I need that, right? So my point is, is like, it's that passion. It's that belief in what you do. And, and reps, if anybody's listening, you know, from a sales rep standpoint, who's listening to this, I think the number one thing you need to be successful in sales is a belief in what you do. Right. And look, you don't have to believe in like how awesome, like copiers. I didn't care how about copiers. I can't stand copiers. They're boring as hell. But I believed that Xerox at the time was the best copier company in the industry. Right. Black and Decker, DeWalt. Like I love DeWalt power tools. So it was easy for me to have a conversation about DeWalt power tools. My first startup was Thrive Networks. Right. We did outsourced IT services. I didn't know anything about computers or technology. But I believed in the people that I was representing. I believed in the service and I knew it was better than everybody else's, right? So you got to find some way of making that connection to that belief in what you're selling. And then I'm not saying it's easy, but man, it's easier when you care. 
Absolutely, man. And this is important right now, especially now, because we're seeing a lot of leaders. And when I say leaders, I mean organizations and companies and, and, and the like. They're having to explain why all of that is the case for their employees, right? Because employees are no longer just saying, hey, I want to work with this company because I know I'm going to get paid a lot, right? They're saying, hey, it has to be a cause. They have to believe that what you do and why you exist aligns with them and they are willing to sell and evangelize the company, right? So I love what you're saying there, John. And you mentioned like you've worked with some cool companies, man. So what made you want to branch out and say, I want to do my own thing after the startup? Like what made you want to do your consultancy service? So going back to like, so I was at Xerox, right? And something just didn't fit right. Again, just even though I was in a sales and a commission job and the harder I worked, the more I got paid, I still was in a corporate structure that you had to spend two years doing this, then two years doing that, then two years doing this. And I remember early on, I was doing pretty well and my boss was blowing all sorts of smoke up my ass. And I was like, all right, cool. Well, if I'm that good, I didn't even think so. I was just doing my job. But I'm like, if you're telling me I'm that good, then here's the job I have, right? There's the next job, which I get, right? Whatever. But that's the job I want. Like that third one up there, that's the one I want. What's my path to get there? How quickly can I get there based on, and just tell me what I need to do to get there and I'll make it happen, right? And he was like, well, John, you got to spend two years doing this and two years doing that. And then you get an opportunity for that role. And I was like, hold still, just let me make sure I'm clear with this. That kid over there that you've actually made fun of to me, right? Like when we go out drinking and whatever it is, like you make fun of my teammate over there about how they're not very good and they're average, whatever. He's going to get the same opportunity for a promotion at the same time as I am. Well, yeah, because that's the way we work. And I was like, mm, nope, something's not right about that. Right. And again, I was stuck in a world of like doing what I was supposed to do. I wrote a blog post a little while back called Stop Doing What You're Supposed to Do. So many of us do what we're supposed to, right? Let's go back to personal stuff, right? You're supposed to be with somebody for a little while. And then if you're after a little while, what are you supposed to do? You're supposed to get married, right? And then you're supposed to have a kid. Then you're supposed to buy a house. And then you're supposed to do all this stuff. Well, I was stuck in that rut with my first fiance. And I thought, even though I knew the relationship was bad, I was going to go through it because that's what I was supposed to do, right? Thank God she pulled the cord and, and bailed on me because I was going to go through it, right? <laughs> and now I'm with my wife and thrilled with my wife and daughter and everything else. Work-wise, I was supposed to be doing this stuff. You know what I mean? I was supposed to be in corporate America. I was supposed to get a job. I was supposed to work hard. I was supposed, right? Yeah. And it just didn't feel right. And I've always said I'm an opportunist. I'm not exactly the smartest cat out there, but I'm definitely an opportunist. And also, my, I think one of my skills is I usually can look at two or three data points and say, all right, that makes sense, right? Without overanalyzing it, and I'll usually be all right. And so my buddy started a company doing outsourced IT services to the SMB market, and they needed somebody to run sales. And I was like, huh, all right. And I'm not a risk taker, risk taker, like live on mom's couch and eat ramen noodles, kid. I'm a calculated risk taker, right? As long as there's some foundation there, like I'm not the first guy that you want like to start an idea, but mm -hmm. I'm the guy you like once that idea is even a seed, I'm the guy you want to come in because I will throw as much water on that seat as you imagine will grow it to the hills, right? So, so pretty I much jumped... they got to sell you on the idea. Exactly. <laughs> and so I jumped on board there, didn't know what I was doing, took every training I could, Sailor Miller, and Taz, all of it, and uh, loved the startup because it was direct like relationship. My effort showed not just my commission, but the impact that it was going to have on the company and growth and everything like that. So we did that for seven years, fastest growing company in Massachusetts for a few years in a row. Got us to about 85 employees, about 12 million in revenue. And then we sold off to Staples. So Staples came and bought us. And I spent about a year going through that integration and come to find out, apparently I'm not a corporate guy. I don't have much of a filter and I really don't like playing politics. So after a little while, Staples offered me another position. They fired me. 
And I was looking for a job and Basho, the sales training company, called me up and said, hey, you want to be a trainer? And I was like, nope. And they were like, why not? I was like, I don't like trainers. Because up until that point in my career, the only type of sales trainers I'd ever come across were their failed sales professionals or professional presenters. We've all been yep. there before. We yep. can tell the trainer's never actually done what they're telling you what to do. Absolutely. Right? And I wanted nothing to do with that. Or you have to use these techniques to sell so you can train so you can get paid. So it was a whole practice what you preach thing. So I was like, all right, I like that, right? So I joined Basho, took on some bigger accounts, brought on some bigger ones. And then make a very long story short, they screwed it up and I took it over. So one day a CEO came in, it was 2007 when things were crashing and we knew things weren't going in, but like, all right, cool. This new CEO is going to come in and help save us. And there was about 20 people on the squad and this new CEO came in and said, all right, that's it. Party's over. And I love the way he introduced himself. He was such a jackass. He's like, this is no longer a democracy. This is a dictatorship. You're going to do what the hell I tell you to do or get the hell out of the way. And I was like, now for somebody like me, I was like, shit, man, you tell me I'm the 15th person on board at a company going for four to 400 million. Like I will clean the trash if you want me to, you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. But everybody else was pretty horrified. And this guy just proceeded to run it to the ground and the economy is terrible. So one day we all were like, all right, whatever. Like things aren't going great. And he walks in, he's like, all right, that's it. Party's over. And we're like, ah, oh, damn. We're like, all right, what's the transition here? Like a month or two or something like that. He's like, I don't think you heard me. Here's a check. Here's a box. Pack your shit. Get out. Like, wow. We were like, right now? He's like, get out. So I remember I ran to the bank, cashed that check. But then I came back and this is what you're supposed to, right? Everybody else is almost like a zombie land. Like, oh my God, I'm fired now. I got to get a job. I need healthcare, all this stuff, right? And I looked, going back to being an opportunist, and I was like, that guy just walked away from what was about a $3 million business with a client list that everybody would kill for and a product that people love and a revenue stream that's already there. And nobody gets to start a business with those three things. And so I rolled into his office and was like, hey, that sucks. Thanks. But what are you going to do with the training? Because he didn't tank the company. He fired everybody except for the developers because he was going all in on the software product that they were developing. Oh, gotcha, gotcha. But he had just fired all the trainers and we had all these contracts with all these huge companies, Forrester, Gartner, all this stuff that had already paid deposits. And so I knew he wasn't going to give them their money back. And I knew he also wanted to sell into them with this software that the company had created. And he had just fired all the trainers though. So he couldn't deliver on the training and I knew he wasn't going to give them the money back. And so I was like, hey, just out of curiosity, what are you going to do with the training? And he, no joke, he looked at me. He's like, damn. He's like, yeah, what do you think I should do with it? I was like, what? I'm like, you haven't figured this out? Yeah. I'm like, are you kidding me? I was like, well, how about this? How about I start a separate company? I'll then go deliver on all those training contracts that you have out there. You keep the deposit. I'll keep the receivable. And then I'll pay you a percentage of revenue moving forward and we'll call it a day. And then we can work together as far as getting your software into those clients. And he was like, yeah, sounds good. Make it happen. I was like, damn. So wow. I remember like written everybody. I was like, all right, everybody come back. I did the whole Jerry Maguire. Like who's coming with me? Right. And I brought them all over and I was like, guys, this guy just walked away. And then only two of the other out of the 10 people, because I had five trainers and five reps out of the 10 of us, only three of us lasted to start this new company. We ended up going in doing it. We ended up firing one of the dudes because he's doing some, some crazy stuff. Now that he was a business owner, he was doing some random ass shit that you can't do illegal. And so we fired him. And then it was me and my other business partner. We ran that for about three years. And then I went off on my own after that. Got you. Man, that is awesome. Like, what are the odds? Like, you're like, man, yeah. what you doing with this training? So you really were able to jump in and start this company with all the things, the pillars that you mm -hmm. need. But there are still some lessons learned, right? So mm -hmm. are there any things that you wish you would have known before you pulled that trigger to open that company? Absolutely. 
Well, I'll do a couple of things that I knew inherently and then things I'd do differently. Mm-hmm. I knew inherently that whenever you go off on your own, right, you need a runway or you need a marquee client or you need something, right? Because if you don't have a runway, what happens is like you need at least a six to 12 month runway. Like, I mean, obviously you can do it from scratch, right? That type of stuff. If you can sleep in your parents' basement and not need any money, right? But if you're somewhat of a grown ass man or woman and you're out there, got responsibilities and rent and those type of things, you probably need six to 12 months so that you don't have to sweat the cash, right? Because the problem is, is when you sweat the cash, you end up going and doing stuff or bringing on revenue or customers that just aren't the perfect fit for what you do, right? And because you need the money. And what they'll do is you will do mediocre work and they will beat the crap out of you because they know they can because you're one of their first clients and all that other stuff. So it'll distract you from doing focusing on the type of clients that you should be bringing in. So you really, really need to get tight on your ideal customer profile. And for me, the way it worked was when the company Basho fired us, right? And it was me and the other two trainers in the boardroom. And we were trying to figure out, okay, like how do we split up these clients, right? Well, there was all these logos and it was like SAP, Gartner, Forrester, like ball or ball or logos, right? And we were kind of fighting over them, right? Because they're like, I used to train them. That's, that'd be my client, right? And all that stuff. Yeah. Now I knew, this was about, again, back in 2008-ish, Salesforce. They were the client that I had trained and they weren't Salesforce yet. I mean, they were, but they weren't really Salesforce, right. right? And I looked at all these other companies like, you know, like SAP, boring as hell. And like some of these other ones, I was like, they're just old legacy stuff that just doesn't get me excited, right? But also I knew Salesforce was changing the game. You know, the whole no software SaaS industry, it was exciting to me. It was fun. Like they were riding high and everything else. And even in a bad economy, I was like, hmm. They're growing like a weed and I can tell from the inside. So I pretended to care about all those other clients. I was like, I've been in SAP. I've, I've trained Gartner, right? But all I cared about was Salesforce. That's the only one out of all the names on the list that I wanted. Because I knew if I got Salesforce and once I did, I overst the hell out of them. I would go to like Singapore for a day. I'd give them discounts that I probably wouldn't give anybody else, like all this other stuff. Because I knew if I made them my marquee client and I made them a raving fan, that the rest of the SaaS industry would almost be like shooting fish in a barrel. And that's what happened. So one is make sure that you have a runway. Two is make sure you are so tight on your ideal customer profile and you only focus on clients that you can do great work for. Because in this world, you cannot get away with doing mediocre work anymore. With all the review sites and all the social stuff and everything like that, you do bad work, it's going to get out there and it'll be exponentially more difficult. So that's one lesson that I kind of inherently knew. Another one is if you are going off on your own, first of all, I should have gone off on my own when Basho fired us. I should have gone straight to the CEO and said, look, I'm going to go do this myself. And can I structure with you personally, right? Right. But I was still scared. I was still scared to go off on my own because I'm like, ah, I was doubted myself, wanted somebody else to be there with me to strategize with and all that other stuff. The other two partners, we didn't choose to go to business together. We ended up as the last three there. And so we went into business together. And when I tell people when they're starting a business, like do not start a business with somebody who can do your job. Right. So like if two sales reps, what's going to happen, even if they're both really good, when you get that type of dynamic where you have two people who can do the same thing, then yeah, they might do whatever. And you could say, okay, you have operations to start and you're going to do this and I'm going to manage that and whatever. But when it comes to the function of what you do, inherently, you're going to look at the other person thinking you can do it better than them, especially if you're two alphas, you're two top sales reps, that type of thing. 
So when somebody's succeeding and the other one's not, the other one feels inferior and the other one doesn't. And look, sales is sales. Like the numbers are the numbers. If you're selling 5X more than your partner is, then you are five times better. You are five times more valuable to the company than that partner is, right? And so what happens is you start arguing with each other. So when you start a business, make sure you have the three pillars. You have an operations person, you have a finance person, and you have a sales person. Those, and if you're doing technical, you want a technical person, obviously, right? I mean, maybe the finance and the operations person could be the same person, right? So maybe like a technical person, a sales slash CEO type person, and a operations person who all do different things and are great at their respective areas. Because then I'll debate with you. I might, if you're finance and operations, I'm going to ask you, I'll challenge you on some stuff. I'll be like, hey, what's going on? Are we sure here? Whatever it is. But at the end of the day, I'm going to default to you because that's your expertise. And I'm going to let you challenge me on the sales side of the house. But ultimately, it's my decision and it's my choice from a sales standpoint because that's my expertise. So I appreciate your feedback, but I'm going to do it this way, right? So I think that's the big piece right there. And then the last thing I'll say is values. And we can tie that back into the thing that you had said earlier, but I'll shut up for a little bit. No, I think everything you said was very necessary, right? You spoke a lot and it reminded me of the book, Traction by Gino Wickman, where he mm-hmm. said, like, get complimentary mm-hmm. supplementary skills, right? You don't want everyone knowing the same things, right? You need diverse skill sets, you need diverse thinking, right? If you really want to innovate and grow, that's what's going to happen or else you're going to shrink and die. So no, I think that everything you said was on the head. And you've also been quoted on saying, none of us have all the answers and things are moving too fast right now for any of us to try and figure it out on our own. And we need to get back to the fundamentals. So in your experience, outside of what you said just now, what else are some of the fundamentals that you were referring to? Well, I mean, that's specifically related to sales. I think we have way over-engineered the sales process. I'm positioning, and you saw this at Apollo, right? I mean, I'm mm-hmm. positioning 2010 to 2022 as the, the golden age of sales. You know what I mean? Like you got into sales after 2010, especially in tech SaaS sales. If you got into tech SaaS sales after 2010, it has not been that hard. I'm sorry. Yeah, I mean, again, you've <laughs> heard me say right, it, right? Like, sales itself, right? Well, I mean, effectively, we've been able to get away with blasting out these template cadence emails, setting up disco calls to anybody with a pulse. Mm-hmm. Droning through bank questions and our dumbass demos, letting our SE do the majority of the work, bringing a VP in to help close the deal, and then offering a massive discount. Like that's been sales for the past 10 years in SaaS. And I'm sorry. And it, by the way, it's not the rep's fault. I kind of make the analogy here. It's kind of like the trophy generation, right? You know how everybody bitches and moans about the trophy. Oh, these kids want a trophy, right? Yeah, yeah, well, yeah. whose fault is that? It's the parents' fault. I mean, when I was growing up, if I lost, I was upset. But my parents were like, okay, well, get better. You know what I mean? Like where the kid today- no consolation prize? What are you talking about? Right. Where today, the kid still feels the exact same way as I did as far as bad when they lost, but now the parent gives them a trophy. It's the same thing with SaaS sales and tech sales. It's like we've given these kids these cadence tools. We've over-engineered the sales process. We've told them grow at all costs. Who cares? Get meetings with anybody with a pulse. And we've skipped all those fundamentals. So now they don't know how to sell. They fundamentally don't know how to sell. They don't know how to engage with people. It's even worse now because of the remote world that we're all in. Mm -hmm. I mean, at least me, when I was coming in, right, I didn't get into sales. I didn't get a ton of great training from a sales standpoint, but I was in the bullpen and I was like, I was in there making calls with everybody else. And so I was picking up sales through osmosis. You know what I mean? Like I'd be sitting next to somebody. I'd be like, damn, I like the way he said that. Or, oh, I like the way she positioned that. Or my VP would come in and sit in the cube next to me and talk to somebody else about a deal and I'd pick up on that, right? And so I just learned by being around sales. 
And so that, the osmosis part, plus the fact that face-to-face, you know, you learn a lot more about people by going face-to-face and meeting with people in person than you Mm -hmm. do seeing them on a screen like this, picking up on body language, picking up on the feel of whatever. And so all that stuff is now gone. And so that's why we got to get back to those basics. We got to get back to the fundamentals of how to engage with people, the psychology around persuasion and influence, and then enable them with this new tech. Right. Because the AI stuff is coming for all of us, whether we like it or not. And that's why I don't think it's even a choice at this point to be average. I've said for years that AIs, even before the boom of ChatGPT and stuff like that, because I was seeing some of this stuff come out in 2017, 2018. And I'll tell you right now, like, I think AI and this tech is going to make good sales reps great, great sales reps, incredible, but average sales reps are relevant. And I mean, irrelevant. And by the way, that is a large portion of our population. That is like 70 to 80% of our population is average at best. And I'm not even joking on that. Yeah. And a lot of them will admit that. I mean, I speak to a lot of salespeople and they they understand that. And I was actually doing one with a bank here in Houston that reached out to me to help them with sales, not because I'm a sales trainer, but because I understand that a lot of them are transactional, right? Mm -hmm. All those fundamentals you mentioned, they skip it. Right. They go right yep. to, damn. Hey, so when are you going to sign this? And they try all these closing methods that we've heard of, right? Scarcity and putting the pressure on them to sign because they can't get the deal today, tomorrow that they will get today and all this other no. crap. Right. So I was there to teach them the relational side of things. Right. You mentioned the psychology of it all. So mm-hmm. and emotional intelligence, being able to read people, how they say it, being able to shift from your script, whatever that is, and nope. say, OK, I can tell that this part isn't working. What are you looking for? How can I help you? And that's the key uh, that a lot of these sales trainers that are average are really, really missing because they've been taught by those gurus that Mm -hmm. have been saying all these things for so long, right? So I want to know, like, what are some ways, right? People who are listening to just say, you know what? That's me. I suck, (laughs) right? And I know it, right? Let me admit to it. Or I just want to get better. What are some ways you can do that? I mean, look, one thing is don't wait for training. I mean, a lot of people blame the company that they're working for for not investing them as far as their any training programs or any of the tools or anything like that. So stop that. There is so much content out there right now, free content that you don't have to pay a dime for. You just need to go find people that you vibe with, right? And are putting out good content that you can try. Look, this is also why I don't like books. I don't like sales books. And the reason is is because sales books tend to be 80, 90% fluff. And then there's two or three concepts in there that really hit, right? So wait, I got to read 300 pages just to get a couple of nuggets here. You don't need to do that. I mean, you can if you like it, great, but just make sure you pull out those two, three when you go through that. But what I'm a fan of is blogs and podcasts and those type of things. That's how I learn. And I like picking up on little nuggets, right? Like tips Mm -hmm. and stuff like that. And so here's, you know, a couple of things you can do. One of them is there's a product called Feedly, F-E-E-D-L-Y. What Feedly is, is it's an RSS aggregator, right? So say there's like five or six sales blogs you like reading. Usually you have to go to five or six different websites to go read those blogs, or you get five to six emails to hit your inbox, right? Mm -hmm. Well, with Feedly, you can actually create a folder in Feedly called sales blogs, and then you dump all your sales blogs in there. So you put the RSS feed and all that, right? And then when you open up that folder, you see all all the headlines of all the sales blogs, right? So you just see the article that they're posting that day or something like that. So you don't have to go from one to one. So that to me is my morning paper, right? So I sit there and as I drink my coffee, you know, I got this morning routine instead of checking my fantasy leagues and getting all pissed off because I suck at fantasy. or whatever, I scan through data feeds. And one of them is like sales blogs. And so I go find the thought leaders who I like, right? Who the ones who I respect and I think are putting out good stuff. 
I take their blogs and I put it into Feedly. And then as I'm drinking my coffee, I just kind of scan through headlines and I'll pick up something, right? And I'll be like, oh, that's kind of neat. Let me see if I can try that. And I try to identify something every week that I can work on. It could be as small as how I introduce myself over the phone, mm. right? So a lot of people, you know, I talk a lot about the science and the art of sales, right? Well, I think obviously sales is both. It's a science and an art. But I actually think sales should be more of a science than an art. And the reason is the science lays the foundation for the art form to be that much more effective, like the structure, the process we put in place, right? So when somebody asked me recently, John, if you could go back and tell your 22-year-old self something, what would it be, right? Mm -hmm. My answer to that was A-B split test everything you do. And I mean this. So literally A-B split test. So say you're calling CIOs in healthcare, right? Well, come up with two different messages to CIOs in healthcare and make 25 phone calls with one approach and 25 phone calls with the other approach and see which one yields a higher response rate. Saying earlier about intros, like literally how you introduce yourself on the cold call makes a difference. Like that first five seconds dictates where the conversation goes. So you can Google literally best way of introducing yourself on a cold call and there'll be 20 different options. And AI, two that you, you like. AI, man, they, it, you got some yeah. great things if you search that, like brainstorm. 100%. How I can introduce myself, right? Go into AI and be like, There's hey, really no excuse. <laughs> there's none. And it's like, give me three intros, you know, give me three more, give me three more. And then go find two of them that you like. And in the morning, every call you make, start with, hi, can I get 30 seconds to tell you why I'm calling before you hang up on me, right? And just keep saying that. Can I get 30 seconds? See if that gets you those 30 seconds. It gets you in a conversation. In the afternoon, start with, hi, this is John Barrows with JB Sales. Are you familiar with us? And see if that works, right? And I'm not saying one's better than the other. I'm saying you'll figure it out. You do this with objection handling, write down an objection, figure out which are the objection you're getting smoked on right now. Go into ChatGPT, whatever, and say, What's the best way of handling this objection? Give me three techniques to handle this objection and what to say. And I'm a sales rep who sells this stuff. It'll give you three techniques. You pick, you know, give me three more, give me three more, find two that you like. The next 10 times that objection comes up, deal with it this way. The next 10 times, deal with it that way. And the reason for this is, first of all, we're all doing the activities. You might as well learn from them. Second of all, it'll help you stay motivated because if most of us now are working remotely and that type of stuff, and sales is a brutal job. And what made it somewhat tolerable in the past is that we were all sitting in the bullpen getting our asses handed to us together, right? So if you had a bad day or a bad call, you could kind of turn to your colleague and be like, hey, you see that? Let's grab a drink. Now, by yourself in your room, in your studio apartment, whatever it is, you got a bad call or a bad day, you're going to look at your cat, right? But if you're a scientist, like say if I tell you to make 50 dials, right, in a day, mm. and you make 50 dials, you get no meetings, that's a terrible day. And it's a demoralizing day. And I agree with you. But if you instead pick one persona, come up with two different messages that speak to that persona based on their priorities and whatever it is. And in the morning, make $25 with this approach. And then in the afternoon, make $25 with that approach. And you still get no meetings. To me, that's actually not a bad day because you just figured out two approaches that don't work. Tomorrow, try a couple new ones. And this way, like I said, you will not only learn what works a lot faster, but you will become agile and you will get through this better than most. No, I love that, man. A-B test everything. You speak in my language because I tell all my clients that like, that we got to A-B test. And a lot of times people are happy and they're content with, say, I made those 25 calls and I get one, right? Then they get stuck on that one and they're like yep. expecting that all the time. So they're not looking to get better. I feel like it's all about iterating, man. You know, Absolutely. it may work today and then tomorrow, next day, you may not get anything. So we just got to mm -hmm. iterate, continue to reinvent what we're doing and, and refine it. So I appreciate mm -hmm. you saying that. So we're going to go to our by design segment where I ask every guest the same three questions. You ready? All right. Go All right. It. So first question is, what has been the hardest part about designing a life and business you don't need a vacation from? 
<laughs> not working for your own company. So I think that's the misnomer here, right? It's like you go off on your own to be an entrepreneur so you can kind of get the time and do what you want and all this other stuff, right? It's wrong. You end up working 10 times harder and 10 times more. And the challenge is, is when you become an employee of your company. And that's worst case scenario. Because as an employee for another company, everybody else did all the shitty stuff that you don't want to do. And you were allowed to do what you do, right? Which is the best part, right? Like sell or whatever that might be. And you probably read E-Myth, but the yes. whole E-Myth book, right? And I just read E-Myth Revisited, which is basically, it outlined a lot of some of the challenges I had. And the whole idea is, you know, entrepreneurial myth. You think, oh, I get to go out and do my thing. And, you know, I can charge half as much as the company's billing me out for and make twice as much and blah, 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 blah. And then you realize the stuff that you are most passionate about, the stuff that you love to do is probably the least amount of stuff that you do as an entrepreneur. Yes. And you wake up one day and you're working for your company and you got nobody else to blame but you. And so I think that's the hardest part is figuring out a way to create a sustainable lifestyle. There's a good advice that I got from my mentor, Jeff Hoffman. He said that you need to treat your business like an asset. And you have to ask yourself, like, what does my asset need from me in order for it to grow? Just like your finances, right? Like your finances are an asset. So if you put yourself in mutual funds or in stocks and whatever it is, like you can't just sit it there and just be like, okay, hopefully it grows. You're like, what does this asset need from me in order to get better or to improve? And if you look at it as an asset, not your company, you know what I mean? Then you start right. to make decisions in a different way. But look, I, I'm probably one of the worst people to ask as far as that balance is concerned, because I've been doing this for probably 15, 20 years at this point, I'm still working my ass off every day, but I'm doing it because I love it too. I mean, there is no way I would do this if I didn't love it. That's why when people, there's another thing to think about, like do not go into business to sell it. If you start a business with the end game in mind, like with money in mind, you won't make that. You'll be chasing money the rest of your life. But if you start a business because you're passionate about it, then the money will come. You'll do what you love. And you might get an exit because you're going to love it so much. You're going to keep doing it the right way. Absolutely. Yeah. I always tell people like money is not a strong enough why. You will burn yourself out and be broke. <laughs> if that's the only reason why you're doing that. So that's for sure. And you were speaking to me, man. You're speaking to myself. <laughs> when you was like, hey, the hardest part is that there's no such thing as balance when you come to be an entrepreneur. The work-life balance is also a sad thing to say, right? Because I tell people, if you're telling me thinking about work-life balance, that's telling me you think you work and then you live. Yeah. And that's sad because if you think about it, you sleep about a third of your life. You work probably at least a third of your life. So that means you're only, quote unquote, living a third of your life. That's a sad <laughs> thing for me, right? <laughs> that is terrible. <laughs> so the number two is what is the best lesson you've learned on your entrepreneurial journey? I mean, there's a lot of learning lessons, right? But you got to surround yourself with people who are going to push you, who are better than you. Don't accept mediocrity. I've accepted mediocrity a lot. I did a lot of favors for a lot of people along the way. I tolerated people way longer than I should have as far as their results are concerned, as far as their attitude was concerned. Take a long time to hire, but fire fast type of scenario. Like when you don't feel it's right, don't do it. Move on. It's your company. It's your choice. You're going to have to live with it one way or the other. Might as well not let it be a boat anchor on you. And try to outsource as much as you can, quite frankly, especially in this world of AI. For sure. You don't need to have 15, 20, 30 people on your squad to grow up early. You can test things out early with outsourcing. And there's so much stuff that can be done with AI. So look for that. I got a laundry list of them, but I would say trust, but verify, right? Friends, if you're going to work with friends, careful. That's yeah, uh, always a tough one. Right. 
that was one. Be as objective as possible. Try to put as many processes in place and as much structure in place and be hyper-focused on goals and reporting and all that other stuff so that you don't have to make decisions on your feelings about things, mm. right? Because there's a lot of feelings being an entrepreneur. There's a lot of frustration. There's a lot of anger when things work or don't work. You know what I mean? So the more objectivity you can have when looking back on whatever that decision was to create that thing, the better off you are going to be. That's when you can fire a friend is when it's obvious that they either did or didn't do what they said they were going to do. They put things in place. They didn't meet those expectations. Now it's no longer, hey, because we're friends, let's keep doing this. You didn't hit your metrics, man. Like, this is the deal. And there's a few, but man, I got, like I told you, I got a laundry list of crap. No, I love it, man. And that's, I mean, you've been in the game for a while, so I expect you to have a laundry list. So we got one more quote. You've given a lot of tools and a lot of tips, but are there three tools and tips that you recommend when scaling a business? I would say... One is determine if you want to be a growth company or a lifestyle company. There's two types of companies and it's very hard to mix those two. Growth company is you're not making a ton of profit. You're going to take the money. You're going to throw it right back into the business and you're going to basically be as poor as you can be for as long as you can be so that you can scale, right? And grow, 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 grow. And then your goal is obviously an exit or valuation or something like that. But if you're a lifestyle company, which a lot of entrepreneurs get into because it's like, hey, I want to dictate my lifestyle, right? Then you be hyper-focused on quality, maximize profits, right? But don't try to take out anybody and everybody. So first of all, make that determination, right? Then back into your numbers, right? And figure out, okay, well, what do you need to do to be able to hit that lifestyle, right? So say your lifestyle is a half million dollar lifestyle that you want to live. Well, then how much revenue do you need to be able to do that? What type of customers you need to make, right? And who's that real ideal customer profile so that you can find the right ones so that you drive towards that, right? Then have a system of records so that you're tracking absolutely everything you can possibly track. And this goes back to split testing. This goes back to anything so that you're constantly looking at data and numbers to make decisions and you're not doing it based on how you feel about what's working and what's not working. Actually, here's another one, which is share value, like really be rock solid on your core values. Because I always say, if you and I have the same core values, then we'll argue, right? And we'll disagree, but we'll come to a mutual point of respect and probably, you know, consideration, right? Whereas if you and I don't have the same core values, then we're just going to argue with each other. and We're going to tear each other apart. Don't tolerate bullshit. Like if you are not like, say you're an ace sales rep and you've crushed it everywhere you went, right? But you're one of those douchey sales reps that's out there just doing anything and everything to get a commission check, but you make it rain, right? But that's not my value. So even if I did bring you on board and you were making it rain for me, but you were a cancer within the organization and you pissed off everybody else and you made everybody else's life miserable. Like, sorry, man, got to go. Like, don't bring that person in. Or, and if they are in, get rid of them because they are probably holding back your entire organization because everybody's scared of them, right? So got to have that core value set piece. And then I would interview on that. I would post that on my page on my website because you said it earlier, kids these days aren't looking just for the commission check anymore. They're looking for purpose. They're looking for alignment. They're looking for growth. They're looking for development. And so that's what you need to show and you need to live it in order to show it, right? You have to be authentic out there. And the last thing I'll say is try not to automate as, you know, automate the administrative stuff, but don't automate the client facing stuff. When I say that, like your outbound cadences, your social posts, all this stuff, like authenticity is what wins these days. And the more you try to game the system to fake that authenticity, 
the more the social world and everybody else will know. And then they'll question almost everything else you do. 100%. I love that, man. It's been a fantastic conversation. Very insightful. Thank you for all the gems, John. How can everyone connect with you? So easiest way is just the website. So the website's jbarrows.com, J-B-A-R-R-O-W-S.com. That's where you'll find all my social handles and everything else. I got my membership there too, where I train on this stuff all day, every day, where people can join for 420 bucks a year. They get access to all my live stuff, all the same stuff I do training for Salesforce and everybody else on, plus AMAs and all those things too. And yeah, LinkedIn, you can follow me. Unfortunately, I've hit the 30,000 limit on LinkedIn, so I can't accept any more connections, which is kind of a pain in the ass, but you can still follow me. And then Instagram is actually the fastest way to get in touch with me if anybody has any direct questions that they have about sales or anything like that because that's where I do most of my free consulting. So the handle on that is John, J-O-H-N-M, as in Michael Barrows, B-A-R-R-O-W-S. Awesome, man. Thank you so much for coming, stopping through Design Your Life and Business, podcast for leaders. It was a pleasure having you, man. And remember, listeners, to keep ascending. Design Your Life and Business, the podcast for leaders, is brought to you by Bright Mind Consulting Group. To find out more about Bright Mind Consulting Group, and how you can become the best leader possible, visit brightmindconsultinggroup.com. Make sure you search for Design Your Life and Business on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or anywhere else podcasts are found. Click subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. On behalf of the team here at Bright Mind Consulting Group, we cannot thank you enough for listening.